This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Gary Linnell, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you very much wanted to meet you for a long time, actually. You know, you just need to write a book and then I can track you down. Have you been stalking me? <laughs> I have been stalking you. I have followed your career. I'm not quite sure why. Was <laughs> Maybe because I used to read the bulletin. No, you know, I just can't remember where it started, but maybe it started with the bulletin, which was quite a, I mean, how many years ago was that? Oh, uh, that was, uh, I started there in about 2002 when yeah. I was hired by the Packers to do that. And I was there for about four years. Yeah. And you used to do a short story collection every year, did yeah, you? Yeah, we did. Uh, towards the end of uh, the year, it was our Christmas reading special. I love that. And it was that. a huge, it was always our bestseller for the yeah, year, yeah. much to the chagrin of most of the people who worked there who thought yeah. their stories should be selling more copies, but it was actually the better reading uh, issue that did the job for us. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let me introduce you. Gary Linnell is one of Australia's most experienced journalists. Born and raised in Geelong, he spent more than a decade as a reporter and sports editor. He has won several awards for his writing, including a Walkley Award in 1998 for Best Feature Writing. He has been editor-in-chief of The Bulletin, editor of The Daily Telegraph, we'll talk about that later, director of news and current (laughs) affairs for The Nine Network, and we'll talk about that too, and editorial director of Fairfax. He spent four years as a co-host of The Breakfast Show on 2UE, and is also the author of three previous books, Football Limited, The Inside Story of the AFL, now guaranteed I've not read that (laughs) because I don't follow sport at all, Raylene, Sometimes Beaten, Never Conquered, and Playing God, The Rise and Fall of Gary Ablett. Gary's most recent book is Buckley's Chance, which follows the story of William Buckley. He fought Napoleon's army and survived, was sent to the gallows and escaped, and was then sent to Australia. So I wonder which one is worse. Uh, One night, Buckley escapes and disappears into the bush. He is discovered and adopted by an Aboriginal tribe and isn't seen again for more than 30 years. When he does emerge one day, he is carrying a spear dressed in animal skins and has forgotten the English language. It is the greatest Australian story that's never been told until now. Extraordinary. It is. It's a captivating story and I fell in love with it probably 50 years ago when I was a little kid. How did you come across it? Well, I I grew up in Geelong, as you said, and I was raised there and uh, occasionally we'd go into, say, Buckley's Falls, which is this beautiful picturesque series of waterfalls in Geelong. Um, and then you'd go down to Buckley's Cave at Point Lonsdale, which is near the entrance to Port Phillip Bay. And it's up on a uh, very big sandstone windswept cliff and it's all barred up. But I'd say to my dad, you know, Buckley, who was he? And he'd said, oh, he was this big bloke who uh, lived with the Aboriginals around this area for a lot of years. And that was it. I went to mm-hmm. school in Geelong, high school in Geelong. I sat there in history class, bored, um, throwing wads of paper at everyone's 
heads, not paying any attention, but we were never taught about William Buckley, well, which is quite too, remarkable. Well, I think from memory too, it was always European history, really. It was. You know, it and wasn't a history that, that we could see ourselves in, was and, it? And from, I, I think we're, we're kind of embarrassed about our history That's because right. it's, um, you know, it's only a short history yeah. and it's also a very bloody history yeah. and there's a lot to be embarrassed about too. There's a lot, to be, lot but, to be shameful about. But we're never taught about the characters and, and I guess it's a problem with the syllabus. Well, it was back then. I don't know about it today. But they didn't bring the characters to life. And to me, that's what history is all about. If you can actually uh, encourage those kids sitting in the class to sit up and suddenly get excited about a tale of someone's courage or bravery, then you've got a much better chance, I think, of telling them the rest of the story and the context around it. Well, you know, it's better than textbooks, isn't it? Like a story like yours, mm. Buckley's Chance, is actually a story. You know, you've written a story rather than sitting there and reading history text. Yeah. Oh, well, I had, I had to plough through a lot of history text. Sure. And when I started writing it last year, I wrote the first 20,000 words and it was in a very traditional non-fiction sort of historical um, style, I guess. And I looked at it and I turned to my wife one day and I said, this is really boring. Mm -hmm. This is not me. It's not my voice. So I threw it out and started again and I sort of cottoned on. I wrote it in the second person and that enabled me to sort of try and breathe a bit of life into a man who was illiterate. So he never left a, a real written record of his own. And I could sort of also paper over some of the cracks that are there and the holes in there because there are periods of his life that we'll never know about just like most people in history. Mm -hmm. And so I could actually pose questions and ask him questions as I was going along and telling his story. Mm, it's a remarkable story. He would have learnt, I guess, the local Aboriginal language, wouldn't he? Yeah, he mastered um, the Wadarung dialects. Um, yeah. There were 50, 25 sub-clans of the Wadarung people living right. around that Geelong area. And he moved around with them seasonally as they moved around their tribal lands. Um, so much so that for those 32 years he spent with them, when he re-emerged into colonial society, he'd forgotten Eng the English language. Yeah. And it took a long time for him to sort of get that memory back um, it's a little bit like the muscle, isn't it? Yes, uh, if you don't it use it. Yeah, it took him ages. And it, there were a few words he, he picked up on in the in the moments when he walked out of the bush, like bread, that seemed yeah. to spark things and lifted a bit of a cloud for him. But it did take him upwards of 18 months before he became quite fluent again in English. Mm, extraordinary story. Um, I want to talk about your story. Um, and so you grew up in Geelong. I want to know how you came to journalism. Uh, yeah, I was um, just a, another Geelong working class kid, I guess. My old man was a postie in Geelong and mum did a bit of home help and, and things like that where there were three kids. So it was a traditional you know, weatherboard house in North Geelong. And I grew up, I was just um, always immersed in a book. I loved reading, but more so I loved writing. And I'd write little short stories and exercise books and science fiction, a lot of it, and fantasy. Boy um, stuff usually. I was just obsessed with Star Trek and all yeah. those things. And when Star Wars came out, I actually was in the front row mm -hmm. six days in a row right. using up all my pocket money. But um, I wanted to become a journo. I'd watched um, All the President's Men, the movie, and then read the book. Do you know, I watched that recently. I mean, I've watched it many times over the years, but recently I noticed that there was 
the only thing that was on his desk, and who was it? Who was the main character? Al Pacino. Yeah. Robert Redford. Robert Redford. Um, oh, gee, you've got me on the second anyway, one. Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman. That's who it was, not Al Pacino. Mm. Dustin Hoffman. And there was nothing on their desk other than a typewriter and a stack of yeah. well, that's and a phone. When I, I lucked into a cadetship at The Age and um, in the early 80s and I was given my first desk yeah, it was in the sports department, I think, and it was a chipped old wooden desk and there was an old Remington typewriter and yes. I don't think the, the Z or the Q actually worked and there was an ashtray and a coffee cup and that was essentially how you worked back then. So I was really fortunate, I think, that I came in in those, the last days of the old style um, of journalism and you'd look across the newsroom at four o'clock in the afternoon and there would be literally a haze of smoke as everyone moved towards deadline and you went downstairs and you saw it being typeset, you went and saw the, the presses were underneath the building, so it rumbled every night. I was addicted. Yeah. I, I would go in there at, uh, say, 10 in the morning and they'd be booting me out at 11 or 12 at night right. and I'd go back to my little flat. I just loved it yeah. and I've always loved it. You know, yeah. I've never lost that enthusiasm or that excitement walking into a newsroom knowing that this is one of the few jobs in the world that's different every day. Yeah. You know, something might happen at midday or one o'clock that completely turns your world upside down and the world of so many other people and you get to report it and you also get to see how things really work behind the scenes. That was the lure of journalism and then you get to write about it, mm. you know. Okay, well, I think this is a good segue into what's happening now. I mean, what do you think is happening to journalism now, not just in Australia but globally? Um, look, we've seen, and I've been involved in this quite heavily. I was at Fairfax for uh, four or five years as um, editorial director at a crucial moment when it became quite clear that the business couldn't sustain itself for much longer going in the old format that it yeah. had existed for a century mm -hmm. and things had to change. And unfortunately, I was the one lumbered with the task of introducing a lot of that change and a lot of the redundancies that followed. And that was, you know, one of the more uncomfortable moments in my career of having to walk into newsrooms and confront 200 staff and say, we're about to lose, you know, a couple of hundred people. Yeah. Um, we cannot keep going like this, otherwise we'll have no business whatsoever. So we had to move to a digital first operation, which meant throwing off the shackles of thinking that the newspaper is the one and only destination for your byline and knowing that it's the news cycle now is 24 hours a day. There's no rest. There's no respite. It's like traffic jams. You know, the, the peak hour just yeah. runs all day in our major cities. So does the news cycle. So we had to re-engineer our newsrooms so that reporters would file to the web first, then it would be pushed out on social media through Facebook and Twitter, get those feeds in, get more eyeballs coming in. The technology was rapidly changing. We could watch our website and overlay a software program so we could see how many eyeballs were watching each story. Yeah, well. So as soon as they started dropping off and there was only maybe it went from 1,000 people reading one story to 500, we'd switch the headline make it a little bit more interesting to try and keep them there. Mm. And that business was fundamentally changing. Mm. Um, and so do you've you think seen we've a done it well? Look, I think we've done the best that we could possibly do given yeah. the circumstances. The news media never saw it coming. Yeah. You know, like all major disruption, you have no idea what's around the corner and you think that you're immune. Yeah. We thought that we were going to be rich forever on those classified advertising profits yeah. and we could keep doing what we had chosen to do. Yeah. Well, you know, that became quite apparent in the early 2000s that that model was not going to last much longer. So there had to be change. Yeah. And I, 
I think look at Fairfax now, as it's called Nine. Um, that merger with Nine has given them so much more influence and power, but we have seen a contraction of the market as well. So there are fewer voices. But in a way, I always say that, you know, there are more independent voices out there now because so many people are getting their news and information from so many different sources. For me, it's given me, it's opened up the world because I now subscribe also to the New York Times and I subscribe to the Washington Post and they're things that I would not have done um, in hard copy. Well, I used to love those papers but I would have to wait three weeks for them to lob in the the room at work and then I'd go through them. Now it's incredible. I mean, this morning I was up at 5.30 and I'm looking at the Wash Post and then then the New York Times, then the Guardian and within an hour... The Guardian's another one. I've looked right around the world and I've also got a good feed and I'm looking at lots of different places. I'm looking at what News Corporation are doing. I'm looking at the New York Times because I want to try and sort of not just get that one bubble echo exactly. room, you know, view that people get. Yeah. And I think that's some of the danger in social media platforms like Twitter, yeah. which is essentially just a an echo for everyone who well, thinks do. the same thing. You do. You live in a silo. Sometimes I enjoy my silo. Sometimes I just don't want to hear the hatred. So I think I'll just stay in my silo for I'm, a couple of days. I'm not on Twitter. Yeah. So I've got an account, but yeah. I've never actually tweeted because I looked at it and I thought, I don't want to be there and be attacked or you don't need that in your life. Yeah, it could be quite ugly. What you need is simplicity. I was talking to someone the other day and I can't remember who it was, who it was a podcast about the difference between letters to the editor and comments on Facebook. Mm. Uh, That's a whole, whole different um, ballgame, isn't it? I've got this thing about people being anonymous. Yeah. You know, you should have the guts to get up and put your name to any comment you make. And if you want to hide behind a pseudonym, well, all be it, but how can you be taken seriously? Yeah. And yet it is awash with these anonymous handles in Twitter, um, even Facebook, yeah. people are getting away with I don't know if it. you remember this or if you're uh, alerted to it. Um, the Saturday paper, mm-hmm. and, you know, I regard that paper quite well, but they started doing an anonymous book reviews and mm. it was, I, I thought it was gutless on all levels. But see, that goes back to the old days of newspapers where there were no yeah. bylines whatsoever. So yeah. people would sort of write whatever they liked knowing that there would be no retribution or no justification for what they've said. Yeah. And I, I just think it's absolutely important that someone puts their name to anything, that any view, mm. and we're lo- kind of losing sight of that, I think, now I in this day of social media. All right. So, um, and I don't want to make this podcast too timely. However, yesterday we woke up to all the national papers, front page, where they're talking about um, freedom of speech in this country, where we're talking about um, the importance of journalists and journalism. And we had every print paper um, had a redacted Mm. story on the front cover. I thought it was quite powerful and I think it translated to digital quite well. Um, I have been saying for years now that we are heading towards a nanny state. What are your views on that oh, and the relationship with journalism? I was banging on about the nanny state for five years when I was really? doing breakfast radio. The, I mean, from everywhere. I mean, I've got a national park just near our place and I said to my wife the other day, we've got a little secret track that we can walk down and walk up to the headland on the cliff's edge and see the whales going past. Beautiful. And I said, how long before we see a sign coming up here warning people that they should be very careful because someone doesn't want to take responsibility for it. Yeah. And sure enough, uh, a couple of weeks ago, the first signs began appearing. 
to me, everywhere you go, I mean, not not just from where you can park and what, but it's also what you can say and what you cannot say. And I think we've become, we've swung too far the other way where everyone's so cautious these days and careful about giving their opinion uh, for fear of having a a hailstorm of criticism come down on them because they're not saying the correct thing. And so that works both ways. Um, Certainly from the media's point of view, um, I think we have restrictive defamation laws and they've been that way for a long time. Basically what it means is that people who are well-heeled who have deep pockets, can go after you and keep you silent. And I know we've made decisions before in newspapers and magazines I've been on, can we publish this because we don't want to be caught up in a, in a court action that's going to drag on for years and cost hundreds of thousands of dollars? Now, on the other side of that, uh, the criticism is that the media have the pockets and that they can take you into litigation and keep that going for as long as they want as well. So therefore, someone who's quite poor won't have the wherewithal to go after them and get their name cleared if they've been wrongly accused of something. Mm. So look, I think it works both ways, but there's no doubt now that there are restrictive um, government regulations in place for the release of information. Um, What should be public? I mean, this is our government. It is huh? our country. It's our country and yeah. it's our government and we've kind of lost sight of that. We, we see this government as a, as a beast in its own right and you've got politicians now who are reluctant to impart with almost any bit of information because they don't see it in the, quote, public interest. I think secrecy, secrecy started with John Howard. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Oh, I think it goes way, way back. If you go back to the Menzies era and even before, um, even, I mean, obviously there were um, restrictions in place during the World War and the World Wars, but it was a different society back then too with, you know, a couple of key newspapers in every market and a radio station and that was about it and everyone towed the line. Uh, These days there are so many ways for information to get out but everyone's extremely cautious because of the the regulation surrounding it and the penalties that can be imposed mm. as well. But I think defamation is clearly one of those issues that completely needs a um, a complete redress. But so too, the so Secrecies what, Act. The Secrecies Act. So talk to me about the two raids that happened in Australia recently. You're talking about the the ABC one. The I ABC. think was phenomenal, and um, I think what what was 
brilliant about that and I know him quite well, John Lyons, who's a senior executive at the ABC who live tweeted the entire raid. And I think that... We need people like that. Yeah, and John is probably... I'd say John is the most courageous journalist I've ever come across. I've seen him on stories that a lesser reporter would shrink away from and not go as hard. He's tough. And here he is sitting in a room while federal officers are going through documents, weeding their way through, looking for source material, and he's live tweeting this, not just for minutes, but for hours on end. Now, we have quite a few American listeners... AFP, Australian Federal Police. Australian Federal Police. Did what? They raided the uh, ABC offices. They were looking for key source material as to who had leaked some information to them. In a story that they didn't yeah. like, that the government didn't like. That they didn't, didn't like. Yeah. And so they basically set the dogs barking, yeah. essentially. And this is a, an ongoing issue in Australia. I mean, America has much less restrictive guide uh, laws around it. Uh, you've got the First Amendment. Uh, we don't have anything like that. No. It's not even in our you know, so-called constitution. So nothing has been legislated to protect the freedom of the press. And this has been debated for years, but you always end up with politicians in this country who lack the courage to take a step forward and open things up a bit. When we talk about democracies, but there is, democracy comes to you in many, many forms. Mm. And what we have in Australia is a light democracy, if you like. What about whistleblowers and our whistleblower laws? It's very, I mean, I've dealt with a few of them over the years. Almost to a person, they are um, vulnerable people who find themselves um, attacked by the establishment, by the organisation that they work for. Um, there are only so many protections that the media can offer them. We've put, I've put people in secure hotel rooms to hide them away for days or weeks at a time uh, because they actually fear, not, just, not for their life, but for their personal safety and for their family. Yeah. And for someone to step forward and take that take that step to tell the world that there is something wrong, that there is something corrupt about the government that they work for, uh, that is a huge step. I've always seen it. I've always thought that it requires tremendous courage to do that. And yet in this country, we're actually labelling them as criminals. Well, even the term whistleblower these exactly. days has got, has got something dirty about it. Yeah. And we, we kind of need, we, words are important and phrases are. are incredibly important and we need to come up with a new way of describing them because almost you know, 90% of them, 95% of them are courageous and they want to set something right yeah. that they think is wrong. Yeah. And it's usually for the, it, it's usually in the best interest of the public of Australians, isn't it? Yep. That otherwise they're not going to come but, out but and risk their career and their life and everything else. I think the rest of the world looks at Australians. We've got this sort of dual personality, I think, a split personality. The rest of the world looks at us as easygoing. Yeah. Or that whole larrikin sort of image of Australians that harks back more than a century. Uh, we, we are actually a very law-abiding society and fearful of change. I mean, that's been quite apparent in our political process for a long time. Do you know, I think it's because we're too comfortable. Oh, we are. We are so comfortable. Mm. We are probably the most comfortable Western mm. society around and we don't lock, like to rock the boat. Mm. And um, this whole persona that we have uh, abroad 
that we're uh, willing to challenge authority, to me, that's a misnomer. That mm. does, doesn't happen in the Australia that I know and that I've lived in for the last 50 years. Mm, I agree with you. I agree with you. Okay, so we've covered covered off journalism. See, I've got you now and I need mm. to cover off all these topics. But um, another thing I wanted to talk to you about is Rupert Murdoch um, and the influence that I think, um, I mean, I and you've worked for them, so you would have a, a much more informed view. And what I'm seeing is I read that article, I think it was the New York Times that uh, on Rupert recently, was it the Times or the New York, I can't remember, um, that talked about the family and talked about the wealth and talked about the influence that they have and that they really, you know, um, talked about the fact that Margaret Thatcher really was only there because Rupert, Rupert decided that she might change the media laws and mm. give him a greater foothold. So to me the, the, um, the story is really just about he runs a paper to acquire personal wealth, right, mm. and just to get richer. And everything that happens is really for the benefit of him and his pocket. Yeah, I, I don't think it's as uh, cardboard and two-dimensional as that. Right. Um, he's quite a complex figure. Yep. Um, I didn't have that much to do with him when I was editing the Daily Telegraph. We had a few meetings here and there. Um, and he was always talking about social policies. He was huge on education massive on education back then. Um, and he wanted to see, um, I guess, Western governments take a different approach to how they teach their children in schools. He was using a model that was in New York at the time. So he's, he's quite, um, you, you see these portrayals of him in the media as the, the despotic kind of media tyrant, um, kind of like a, you know, that Citizen Kane kind of Yeah, and that role. was what this article was presenting. Yeah, yeah. And, and look, there are aspects of that. There is no doubt about yeah. it. He wields enormous influence. What did the Sun say when they managed to get one of the governments back into power? And it was, it was the Sun, what did it? Yeah. You know, they were happy to brag about it. No doubt about it. Wields enormous power. When I was editor of The Telegraph, you had a steady stream of prime ministers, um, opposition leaders, all coming in, wearing out the carpet, wanting to have a meeting with you yeah. and trying to sort of win you over with their ideas, take you out to lunch because they knew that uh, in the Australian media and it was then that uh, the Murdoch press had about 70% of the media in this country, mm -hmm. um, no doubt about it. I mean, you know, I think the best example is The Australian, which, you know, has always whistled to Rupert's tune. Yeah. Um, but it's got its market. And he, the bottom line is he may want to uh, have an influence over governments and government policy, but ultimately he's a media operator who wants to sell, well, back then, newspapers. Yeah. So now we've got the acquisition of um, Nine, who's acquired Fairfax. One of the things that I was joking about is I'd hate – my fear around that acquisition was that maybe we'd all start thinking that Carl Stevanovic was now a journalist. <laughs> but that's not that's, – he's, he's gone. But, so the, but that just presents two big players, right? And how does that change? We're back to where we always have been, aren't we? We I mean, are. We've, we've always had a um, like a dual sort of monopolistic kind of system where you've had two key media operators in this country. Don't forget, we're a country of just 21, 22 million people. Yeah. I think we're approaching 24 now. We're 25, I think, at the yeah, moment. We're yeah, small. we're small. We're small. Yep. It's a tiny bucket. We, yep. we don't have the volume. We don't have the size and the reach that other Western nations do. And I think that's just a, that's just a natural working of the market. Um, one of the things we, we tend to forget, though, though, in this new digital age 
is the power of the blogger, the power of the YouTuber, yeah. the power of the Instagrammer. So suddenly you've got you've, what, what has been created in the last two decades is a phenomenal amount of new voices out there. Um, my son is 30. He doesn't read traditional media. He doesn't watch free-to-air television. He wouldn't have watched free-to-air TV in 10 years. Yeah. My daughter's 25. She's the same although she's now working in mainstream media, so she's becoming a bit more aware of it. But people, young people these days under the age of 30 are not getting their news from the key mastheads anymore. They're picking it up from various areas. They're picking it up from Reddit, which yeah. is you know, really big among younger people. And you know, as a traditional newspaper person, I worry about that sometimes because I, I think they're not trying – it's back to the old echo chamber again. They're not quite getting that world view and the disparate voices that you probably need when yeah. you're trying to form an well, independent also, opinion. Well, and also, as we saw with the um, American election, that kind of news can be manipulated quite quickly. I mean, you know, look what happened with Facebook and Trump and, yep. you know, the Russians and whoever put that propaganda mm. out, uh, out there. So if they get if that's only their news source, that this is what we're seeing. Yeah. And that's problematic. It's a, it's a weird kind of world at the it moment. Is, if you isn't if it? you have a look at the way um, you know a, a former property developer, still a property developer, who had a a, a, a reality TV show is now president mm. of the United States. But is it that different to the eighties and Reagan? Yeah, is the it? forces at work are slightly different, but I think the underlying uh, causes there remain the same. Mm. Although he's mad, you got a very doubtful look on your face, there. <laughs> he's oh, I kind of enjoy Trump. Do you? I, I, I know, you know. I think he's a bit destructive. I'll put my shields up here now. <laughs> oh, no doubt about that. He is—he is the ultimate disruptor. Yeah, he you is. Know, after two decades of disruption in so much of our lives, here he comes as the ultimate disruptor. He is turning things upside down. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. He has done bad things, no doubt about that, and. We'll, I think we will judge him in the longer term for what he's done. But at least he's questioning that establishment, that beltway in Washington, yeah, that whole group think that you should do things in a traditional way. Sure. He's throwing that upside down and throwing it up in the air. And I, th- sure. and I think that's a very healthy thing sometimes. You Sometimes you need a storm to come through. Yeah, he's certainly that. The only thing I think with him is, again, he's only there to line his pockets and his family's pockets. And every decision, he's probably acquired some kind of personal wealth. Oh, look, I, I don't doubt yeah. it. But then you see you know, people like Obama who goes and signs an $8 million book contract and Bill Clinton did the same and they're on the speaking circuit and they get $5 million bucks a, an appearance. Um, everyone benefits when they get into public office. They all profit from it at some point. Mm. You know, you've got Do Mel- they use foreign policy to profit? No, certainly not, probably not as much as this no. bloke, but yeah. he's the extreme. Yeah. We're now dealing with the extreme we are. We are. and probably the, the end game of the change that we've seen taking place in this world. When William Buckley came into the world in 1782, that was the onset of the Industrial Revolution and that created massive change across Europe and what was then the known world. All of a sudden, people who had lived in rural hamlets and worked on farms were being pushed into cities because there was no work for them. There were threshing machines and things starting starting to appear by the year 1800. And that completely disoriented society for a long time. Uh, Alcoholism rose. There were thousands of illegal gin houses in London. Um, 
people were living in poverty. Uh, we're not seeing that same extreme now. We could. But the disruption that we've yeah. seen in the last 20 years on a societal level is essentially the same. Yeah. And we won't know what kind of effect that's had. But we still don't know what effect the, the mobile phone and the screen is having on our brains. There are some scientists now who are saying our actual brains are changing in the way that we receive information and the way that we impart it. Mm. Now, that's going to take a long time to play out, mm. but there's no doubt that you know, we're living in this incredibly fascinating time. It's turbulent, it's crazy, and it's disorienting, I think, for most people. I mean, I, I get to the point where I just go, enough, I'm turning this off, I'm turning my screen off, I've got... I need to read Hilary Mantel's Bring Up the Bodies Again, so I'm ready for the third instalment of that Wolf Hall series. Well, that's what I was and going to say. And I just need say. to immerse myself in a book. That's what I was going to say. Turn everything off, immerse yourself in a book, read Buckley's Chance. Gary Linnell, thank you so much for joining us thank today. You. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app Join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.